Well, I once uh, heard a missionary tell the story of how his five-year-old son's life uh, was saved by his own obedience. Uh, Scott and his son were in the back garden of their home in Thailand, and the boy was playing away in the back garden, in the grass. And Scott was sitting reading the book when he saw something out of the corner of his eye, something moving in the grass. You can tell what it is. It's on the screen. Uh, as he lowered his book, his eyes widened with panic as he watched a monocled cobra move just a few feet from his son and stop, lift its head, flare its hood, ready to strike. He was petrified. This is one of the most venomous snakes in the world. Well, Scott knew straight away that there was one thing that stood in the way of his son's safe escape, disobedience. Scott knew this. Scott's face winced at a thousand episodes of his son's disobedience replaying in his head, and that was just from the previous week. He had recalled, even in those moments, every defiant no and every pursuit, every chase, as the boy turned and hopped off in the other direction. So Scott knew that he had to speak, and speak with all seriousness and with all clarity. And he said, son, stay still and listen to me very carefully. If you listen very carefully and do what I say, I will keep you safe. But if you don't, you'll be in danger. Stand up very slowly right now. Now look at my eyes. Take one step toward me very, very slowly. And another. And another. Now run as fast as you can. You jumped a little bit, David. I'm sorry, I gave you a fright. Sorry, we're not in the habit of scaring people at Charlotte Chapel, but uh, I couldn't resist it. Sorry. Now, the seriousness of the dad's voice, the clarity of the dad's instructions, ultimately are what brought the boy to safety. And that's how, with his own obedience, he was saved. Obedience prevented this terrible, terrible tragedy. The little boy's life depended on him loving the authority of his dad and doing just what his dad said. And what I want us to see from 1 Kings 9 tonight is that the same was true for Solomon back then. In fact, in the book of Kings, first and second, the same is true for every single king that God appointed in Israel and later in Israel and Judah, northern and southern kingdoms. So in 1 Kings 9 in particular, what we see is the Lord appearing to Solomon for, as the text says, the second time. And like the dad in the story, the Lord has some very careful instructions about two things. One, the necessity of obedience, and two, the tragedy of disobedience. And that's going to be our outline tonight, if you want to take note. And Solomon's success would depend on him loving the authority of his Lord and doing just what his Lord said. So first of all, the necessity of obedience, verses 1 to 5. Let me give you some background, some context. When you look at verse 1 and 2, they tell us that Solomon had finished his building program. God appeared to him the second time. The first time, if you remember, from 1 Kings 3 was at the beginning of Solomon's reign, and God gave Solomon at that time the opportunity of a lifetime. He said, ask for whatever you want me to give you. 
recognizing his own neediness and the weight of responsibility that was on his shoulders as the king over God's people, he chose wisdom and he chose well. But now, as the Lord addresses him a second time, it's time for Solomon to choose again, obedience or disobedience, pleasing God or not pleasing God. And I wonder even if, before we get right into the text tonight, if we realize that's a, the kind of choice that we all have to make. If you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, if you haven't personally found relief and happiness at the promises of Christ's forgiveness and the prospect of his coming kingdom, the Bible says that you are making a choice daily to rebel against him. Uh, before I became a Christian, I did not know that. I didn't realize that just living my life the way that I was wanting to live it, without, with a kind of happy independence of God, I didn't realize that it was rebellion. I didn't think that God exists, but in reality, he does. He is the God of uh, heaven and earth. He has made himself known, communicated his presence in many, many ways, and called us out, that is humanity, for our rebellion. But rebellion is when we don't love the authority of God, and we don't do what he says, and that's really what the Bible says constitutes this thing called sin, which the Bible talks a lot about. But you can choose wisely today, obey the gospel and the call to turn away from sin and believe in Jesus Christ. That is a choice that we have to make day by day. And now, even if you know just a little bit about what the good news is of Christ's coming, his living, his dying on the cross, his rising again, his ascension to heaven, and his imminent return, you are now informed to make a choice right now, even in the simple terms, as to whether or not you would like to follow up on that information and think, well, if that's real, this is life-changing, or not. Walk away unchanged, walk away unmoved. It's your choice. But the choice between obedience and disobedience isn't just at the start of the Christian life. It exists, it's apparent, throughout it too. Will I choose to walk the path of righteousness or veer into the undergrowth of unrighteousness? Will I take him at his word or cast his words behind me, as the psalmist said, like litter? Will I choose to be defensive when someone points out my sin or will I repent? Will I let the fear of man or the fear of God shape how I live and the choices that I make? Will I upgrade my story with a few embellishments in the hope that my friends might find me just that little bit more interesting or choose God's instruction to tell the truth and rest in his unrelenting interest? It matters. Choice matters in a million different micro-moments in our Christian life. And obedience is vital. Some think grace trumps that. Trump, you can't really use that word anymore, can you? He's ruined the word. <laughs> No, but rather, anyway, grace motivates obedience. We'll think about that a little bit later in the sermon. But for now, in this particular passage, Solomon has his own choice to make. That's obvious from the very big if at the start of verse 4. Israel's blessings depend on the conditions of this statement. It's going well just now. It's as good as it's ever been. But for that to continue, God has these conditions. If you do this... I will do that. So what does God say? In verse 2, he points out that faithfulness and obedience are vital to Solomon's walk. In verse 2, God has very clearly underlined what he's done. I've heard your prayer, consecrated the temple. 
I like it. I've moved in with my people, God says. That's what I've done. Now, verses 4 and 5, he says, as for you. Now, here come the conditions to this covenant, this, this promise, this relationship. Remember, it's like a marriage in a sense. It takes two to tango here. And God underlines this by saying, I've done this. Let's talk about you. Now, this isn't, just to be clear, this isn't a plural you. This isn't the Glaswegian yous. He's not talking to all of Israel. He's talking specifically to the king as God's representative of the people and before the people. And within the old covenant, what you find again and again, particularly in the books of Kings and Chronicles, is that the king, the king's life, the king's spiritual walk, if you like, affected the nation's health, spiritually speaking. If the king was a good king, loving God and walking in his ways, then the nation would live under God's blessing. If he was a bad king, replacing God and walking however he wanted to walk, the nation would live under God's curse and judgment. And you'll see this throughout the rest of First and Second Kings. Every king is either a thumbs-up king or a thumbs-down king based on this criterion. If you want to be a bit more detailed and get into the nitty-gritty of it, it basically comes down to this whether or not the king will allow worship on the high places to the idols or keep it to the temple where it's meant to be. And every single king that you mentioned, whether they're a paragraph or a page long, it's a thumbs up or a thumbs down. And I'll give you a hint. Every single one is a thumbs down bar too. See if you can find them. There's your homework. But what God says to Solomon specifically here is, if you walk before me faithfully, with integrity of heart and uprightness, as David your father did, and do all I command and observe my decrees and laws. Verse 5, I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever. So God asks for faithfulness first. There's, no, there's to be no waywardness on the part of Solomon. He's to love the Lord his God only. He's making vows with God. Now, he's expected to be faithful to them, and God explains what that faithfulness actually looks like. It's about integrity of heart and uprightness. Integrity is all about this adherence to moral and ethical principles, the very moral and, and ethical principles that God has outlined for him in the law, specifically in the Ten Commandments. It's about having a healthy and sound moral character. And the uprightness or righteousness, like David, well, Whenever you hear that, lots of people think, oh, David was no saint. The mention of his name often reminds us first of his adultery and then of murder of Uriah. But we have to understand that when it comes to Israel's kings, David is the one. The Bible presents David as the one who set the spiritual standard for all of the kings that followed him. Because he loved God. And even on occasion when he sinned so heinously and horribly with Bathsheba and her husband... He actually repented of it. He owned his guilt, took it before God, confessed it, and asked to be restored. And God did that. And, and he did not turn away from God to idols. He's a thumbs up king. And that's why Solomon is encouraged to follow in his father's footsteps. So first God says, I want faithfulness. Then he says, I want uprightness. This is obedience. Do all I command. Observe my decrees and laws. Solomon knew all about this. We looked at Solomon's prayer. What did he ask God for at this dedication celebration of the temple? He asked for forgiveness of sins. But he 
called on the people and prayed for the people to be obedient to God's decrees and laws and to keep them, to protect them, to guard them, to honor them, to uphold them in every respect. So faithfulness and obedience then are vital in his walk with God and walking in God's ways brings God's blessing. That's what God communicates. He says, if you walk before me faithfully and do all I command and observe my decrees and laws, verse five, I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever as I promised your father, David your father, when I said, you shall never fail to have a successor on the throne of Israel. So if Solomon particularly met this condition, the reward would be nothing less than the eternal kingdom, a legacy like that. It's incredible. And God would keep his promise. But again, let me stress the particularity of the promise. It's to Solomon as king of Israel. You're not Solomon. He's not saying to you, if you walk in faithfulness and if you're perfectly obedient, I'm going to give you a king with an eternal kingdom. No, he's not saying, he's saying this specifically to Solomon. And yet, we know from what the New Testament teaches in this regard that the same principle applies to us. Not the promise, but the principle. If we follow in the ways of obedience to the Lord's words, we will have his blessing. Obedience itself will be a blessing because walking in God's ways brings joy. But obedience leads to many other blessings that are positive gains to be discovered when we walk in his ways. Doesn't Jesus outline for us that for us again and again in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 to 7? In John 13, he does the same. He sets the example. He, he, he makes himself a servant and he washes his disciples' feet. And he says, you call me teacher and Lord and you're right, that's what I am. And he said, now, if you know these things, that I'm your teacher and that I'm your Lord, blessed are you if you do them. There's blessing in obeying him as the teacher and Lord who says, serve one another in humility. Serve one another in love. You see that? That's the way that God wants Solomon to walk. It's the way that he wants all of us who call him Lord and teacher to walk. But there is another way to go in life. Another path to choose. The path of disobedience. But going down that path, God is trying to communicate to Solomon and to us would be tragic. That's what he highlights next. And this is where we see number two, the tragedy of disobedience in verses six to nine. Disobedience is deadly. We're left in no uncertain terms about that. The consequences are talked about like they are a curse. Now, verses 4 and 5 said, If you walk before me and do all I command, I'll establish your throne. But verse 6 says, But if you or your descendants turn away from me and do not observe the commands and decrees I've given you and go off to serve other gods and worship then, verse 7, let's see if you can pick out the curses here, then I will cut off Israel from the land I've given them. I will reject this temple I have consecrated for my name. Israel will then become a byword and an object of ridicule among all peoples. So there are three main curses in there. The land, the temple, and the purpose of God's people. The land. Land was very, very important to the Old Testament people of God. This is the promise given to Abraham 
God stood, Abraham looked out over the land of Canaan, this promised land. I'm going to give you this land for your inheritance. And Israel's very identity, who they were as a people, was entirely tied up with this dirt and the trees and the rivers that Abraham surveyed on that occasion. And to lose it would mean that they had been dispossessed. It would mean that God had judged them. They would have nowhere to live. They'd be nomadic. There'd be a loss of identity. It'd be like going back to the wilderness. Then there was a temple. Well, the temple, as we've seen already in 1 Kings, was the, God's promise to his people to dwell with him. But the rest of their disobedience would mean that all of this, the, the hard work, the, the, the satisfaction of the temple's completion, the celebration of its consecration, would be meaningless. It would be turned into rubble. And in terms of purpose... Well, God had staked his reputation among the nations on his people. He said to Moses to communicate that to his people as he was taking them out of Egypt. He said it to them again and again. He said it to them at Sinai when he renewed the covenant with them. He said, when people look at you, they ought to see me and know that the Lord is good and the Lord is great. And you're meant to communicate that kind of message. But in the end, you will be a laughingstock. Facebook will be full of fail memes and Solomon's face will be on every single one. And Israel will become a proverb of disaster, the epitome of unfaithfulness, of, of throwing it all away. So maybe someone who has it all, a wonderful wife, lovely kids, a great job, a meaningful membership in God's people, yet throws it all away, will hear it said of them, you're doing a Solomon, you're doing an Israel. And Israel will only have themselves to blame, God says, as verses 8 and 9 say. Some who are appalled and who scoff at this will turn around and say, why has the Lord done such a thing to this land and to this temple? People will answer, verse 9, because they have forsaken the Lord their God, who brought their ancestors out of Egypt. And have embraced other gods, worshipping and serving them. That is why the Lord brought all this disaster on them. <laughs> Their sinfulness is so obvious. They're disobedient. So easily diagnosed that even the nations who do not know God know why. But you see what Israel would do in their disobedience? It's, it's reverse Repentance. It's reverse repentance. Repentance is really very, very well described for us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 9. Paul is eulogizing, loving the Thessalonians for their newfound faith and the way in which their lives are being transformed. They're having an impact not only on their little city in Thessalonica, but beyond the borders of their town, north, south, east and west, everywhere, their repentance is made known. And he says, Paul says, people are talking about how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and the true gods. But God says, if the king and his people reverse that, they turn to idols from gods, to fake and powerless gods that promise much but deliver nothing. They're really just false gods of man's own making and therefore totally futile. 
And he says in the end, the people will forsake God. They'll, they'll just abandon him. And they'll turn to these idols, thinking that they are better. How short-sighted. How dangerous. How deadly this disobedience. This is a gracious warning to Solomon, isn't it? And to us about idols. I'm not going to delve much into it right now because we're going to think about it over the next two sections in our One King series. But suffice to say that Solomon doesn't fare well. The author is really getting us ready for chapters 10 and 11, making sure that we can really identify the reason why Solomon's kingdom, which rose so gloriously, fell so catastrophically. Because Solomon did not keep the terms of the covenant. As a representative king, he failed, and consequently, Israel failed. Israel was cursed. They forsook the Lord their God and turned. They practiced this reverse repentance that the Lord talked about. Now, the book of Kings goes on to document the success or failure of every king that ruled over Israel, either northern or southern kingdom, because in the end, because of their sin and their disobedience, the kingdom would split in two all the way down to the exile. No one was able to keep the covenant and bring blessing on the people, but this is where we see once more that Solomon is not the anointed king that we've been waiting for. He's not the Messiah. God had promised to David, remember, one who would sit on his throne. And despite the unfaithfulness of David's own son, Solomon, God was going to be true to his own promise. King David's greater son would come. And he would keep the covenant. And he would bring unspeakable blessing on the people of God. He is the one king in all of history who understood the necessity of obedience and kept the covenant perfectly. And we know who he is. He is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the one who is perfect in his obedience. He never forsook God at any point, never ever turned away from him, and he never ever sinned. Do we think about that? Do you ever pause to grasp the significance of Christ's perfect obedience to God? never failing at any point. We pass so quickly sometimes over the sinlessness of Jesus, but it is amazing to ponder. He perfectly walked before God as a child, a youth, a man. Hebrews 4 tells us that he was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. So it's not that he had a, a kind of clean sweep, that God kind of kept him in some kind of bubble, right? Okay, 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 Cape Cross, job done. No, he was tempted in every way as we are. And his obedience was so perfect, so unrelenting, really. His obedience was so perfect, so complete, that he would be obedient even, as Philippians 2 says, unto death. A death to which he willingly went. Not coerced. Not shoved. But yet commanded. And at last in Jesus Christ... 
the one in whom there was no sin, we have a king who passed the test, who recognized that disobedience was deadly for everyone, for all of humanity, not just the nation of Israel. And the one who knew what his obedience would win for people who loved him and obeyed him for themselves. There is a king who wins for us all the things that Israel hoped for in upgrade. There's a king who wins for us not only a place in which to dwell, but a permanent place. And a permanent place where we enjoy God's presence, not just temporarily, not in a building to visit, but in a home in the new heaven and new earth. And as we wait for that final eternal accommodation to be ours, Christ gives us purpose and does for the church across the world and in local congregations like this what he did with Israel staked his reputation on it. We are God's people who live for his glory and for his renown. That's what the new covenant people of God do. And what God said to Israel, Jesus says to us, when people look at you, they ought to see me. So by this all we'll know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And his command is clear. The imperative is there. 1 Peter, love one another deeply from the heart. And this is where we see what this means for us. That we know fine and well from what the Bible tells us that without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Without perfect obedience, no one can even hope to have a hearing. But the punishment that our disobedience deserved was borne by our King on the cross, the Lord Jesus Christ. And, but Jesus' greatest act of obedience when he went to the cross, that's when we saw that the true temple, the new and better temple that is his body, was destroyed at that time when people who walked by scoffed and mocked at what they saw. But in fact, by going to the cross, he wins for us a righteousness that is not our own. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last, as the Apostle Paul says. Righteousness. Christ's perfect obedience credited to us when we believe in him. Faith from first to last. And then... Well, as Ephesians 1 tells us, every spiritual blessing in Christ is poured out on those who love him. So we are blessed to the nth degree, way much more than the Old Testament, the Old Covenant people of God. It is incredible what Christ has won for us, despite our undeservedness. But Jesus... Perfect obedience, I want to say tonight in closing, does not negate ours. I want us to see that it necessitates it. Not as a means of salvation at all, but as the fruit of our salvation. Jesus' perfect obedience then motivates ours. When we trust in him and receive 
the tag of righteous, pardoned, obedient, on account of simply putting our faith and trust in him and his cross, we are still called to obey his commands. We are not permitted the folly or the error that Paul talks about later in Romans of abusing God's grace. Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Have we got a free ticket to disobedience? By no means. No, 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 no. His grace is no excuse for sloppiness. His grace is the very thing that fuels our walk with him. John 14, 15, Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey what I command. That's crystal clear. Verse 21 of the same chapter, whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. In 1 John 5, verse 2, in fact, this is love for God to keep his commands and his commands are not burdensome. Verses 4 to 5 in 1 John says, he who says, I know him, but disobeys his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him is truly love for God is perfected. 1 John 3, there's lots in 1 John about this. And by this, we may be sure that we know him if we keep his commandments. By this, we may be sure that we are in him. Do you see that? Our love for the Lord is manifest in our obedience. When we trip up and stumble and fall into disobedience, we are caught in the arms of his grace. He does not love us any less. Don't go away thinking that is what I've said tonight. Because I haven't. I really haven't. We are to be obedient to the Lord. Not as a means of attaining salvation of presenting the CV before God and saying, there's my back, Lord. I need to give it a wee pat. But instead, we come humbly before him, accepting Christ's death on the cross as, our, as the substitutionary sacrifice for our sin. And flowing from the grace that we receive from him, we walk in his ways with the Spirit's help, trusting in his grace that covers every single sin that we have committed and will commit tonight, tomorrow, next week, all the way up to the very day we die. Walk in his ways. Our love for God, Jesus says, will be manifest in obedience. It won't be perfect for there is no one who does not sin, but this obedience, brothers and sisters, ought to be desired, ought to be pursued. Disobedience ought to be repented of and God's grace and forgiveness enjoyed. Yes? <laughs>